Hello, this is Jim Walsh, and welcome to my podcast called On Eagle's Wings. Last week, we began a podcast asking the question, what exactly is the New Testament? And we noted that we could say that it's simply the 27 books that comprise the teaching that is revealed unto us about the life of Jesus Christ and how we as disciples can follow him. Or we could say it's the the doctrine of Jesus Christ. We looked at the account that is found in 2 John verse 9 where it says, Whosoever transgresses and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. So thinking about those 27 books, we recognize that it is where I'm going to find how I can live in order to please God. We could say that the New Testament is the truth that God has revealed unto man, and again, that would certainly be true because that's what Jesus said in John's Gospel, John chapter 16, verse 13, and speaking about the Spirit of God coming to reveal further information to Jesus' apostles. He said, John 16, verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So we noted then that it is the promise of the revelation of God and that these individuals would be guided into all truth. So we could say it's the 27 books of the New Testament that reveal unto us the doctrine of Christ that we must abide in, whereby being convicted that it is the truth that God wants us to live by. And we could say all of those things. But we also wanted to recognize that As with anything that God provides, it's more than one simple definition that in thinking about the New Testament, there is far more to that. So we began last week by recognizing when we talk about the scriptures, we're not talking about a work of man, but we're talking about that which is given to man by God. We noted that the New Testament then is the only source of authority for God's people. If I want to know how to live to please God, then the New Testament reveals that to me. I don't have to go to any man. I can look at God's Word, and I can find that for myself. And that that Scripture reveals unto me all that I need to know, that God has not left anything out. God is not going to reveal something in the future. God has revealed all that I need to know. A second thing we considered, it is the only place I can go to learn how to be saved. And so, if God has revealed everything that I need to know, included in that is going to be the knowledge of what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do? And so, we note that disciples who heard the gospel, believing that Jesus is the Christ, were all told to repent of their sins. Jesus himself said that in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 13 and in verse 3. We read the account where Jesus said, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, one would think that repentance is something that would come naturally if God is telling me that I'm living the wrong way and that I need to live a different way, that I have to change what I'm doing. And that's what we're dealing with when we deal with repentance. It's a recognition that what I'm doing is wrong and I must change. 
but not simply go in a different direction. Repentance means following God's way of doing things. So I recognize sin as being wrong. I repent of that. I acknowledge that it's wrong, and I turn away from it. And thus, we find that those who believed the gospel, uh, those who repented of their sins, those who were willing to confess Jesus as Christ, and then those who were baptized for the remission of their sins are seen as those who were added by the Lord himself to his church, becoming part of the household of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church such daily such as should be saved. Who was being added? Well, you can go back in Acts chapter 2 and read the context. It was those who heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and obeyed the commands that Peter gave to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So we noticed some of those things last week, and, and this week we simply want to conclude in dealing with some other aspects of what exactly is the New Testament. And so another thing that I can recognize in answering the question, what exactly is the New Testament? It is the only place that I can learn about the organization of the Lord's church. We find that Jesus is the head of the church and the church is described as the body of Christ. And so one place we can go is looking at Ephesians chapter one, where Paul talks about that. Beginning in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he, speaking of the Father, wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus is the head of the church. There is no other head. There is no physical head on earth. You know, sometimes people think, well, because Jesus left, he must have left someone in charge. But Jesus never gave up his role as head. Paul is writing this about 30 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he said, he is, present tense, the head of the church. He is the head of the body. If we understand the metaphor that is given in the New Testament, we are members of the body of Christ. We are added by the Lord, as we noted in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, added to the church. He adds us to his body when we obey his commands in dealing with being saved. As part of that body, then, we have access to our Heavenly Father. We have fellowship with our Heavenly Father through his Son. He is alive and continues living. And he exercises his authority, not simply in heaven, but also on earth. Note what Paul said here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. He is in heaven, but just as the heavenly Father exercises his authority from heaven, so does the Son. He's not given up his right to be head over the church. And he's not given it to men. 
The scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even though we have a great desire to serve God and would give all our heart and all our soul and all our mind to serving God, we know the tempter is out there and we know that there are times that we fail. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must repent of our sins, pray God for forgiveness, knowing that God will do so. That is the promise that he gives to his disciples. But still, we can fail. And you can go through the scriptures and you can find godly men. Abraham was declared as the friend of God, but Abraham lied. Moses was a man that God could trust to lead his people and to deliver faithfully God's word to the nation of Israel. But then, instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock in that famous account to bring forth water, and God said, because you did not honor me, then he didn't get to enter into the promised land. So even someone like Moses fell. David, the great king, committed murder, committed adultery with Bathsheba. We can look at any individual, even those declared as righteous by God, and we can find they failed. There's only one who never sinned, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In him is no sin. That is why he continues as the head. So the scriptures reveal Jesus is still the head. But locally, we gather as disciples. And we find in the scriptures that in a local organization, that there are men who are qualified then to serve as overseers. In Acts chapter 14, we read, beginning in verse 21, speaking of Paul and Barnabas and the ending of their first missionary journey, it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord on whom they believed. So they ordained, they set up, they established elders. We can read, and we're not going to go into all of the information, but we can read of the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in, in verses 1 and following in that chapter. And so men who are married, who are faithful men, who are teachers, who have children that are, that are Christians, these men can then be appointed, uh, multiple men, can be appointed, it says that they appointed elders in every church, multiple, plural elders in a church. So in these different congregations that they went to, they established an organization. And that organization was to have overseers. And then again, in looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you can read the again the information there, these men were then to teach and to strengthen and to assist disciples in conforming to the image of Christ. So it's the only place that we can go, the New Testament is the only place we can go to know about the organization of the Lord's body, of the church. But another thing we recognize with respect to the New Testament, it's the only place I can know about how to worship God. You know, people have lots of ideas of what worship is. There's a wonderful account that's found in John's Gospel, in John chapter 4 where Jesus is dealing with a woman of Samaria, and it's often referred to uh, the woman at the well. 
Jesus talks to her and reveals things about her that nobody knew, demonstrating as God in the flesh that he knows what has happened in the lives of individuals and what they're thinking. And she says in John chapter 4, beginning of verse 19, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Well, then she has a question on her mind. She wants to know about worship. Verse 20, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, so they're in Samaria, in the mountain of Samaria, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This woman thought that worship dealt with a place. But Jesus said, it's not limited to a place, and how wonderful that is, that you and I, wherever we can live, we have a guarantee from our Heavenly Father that if we're part of His household, that we can gather with other disciples wherever we are, and that we can worship Him, and that we can learn His truth and worship Him according to that truth with the right attitude. We find that worship then is to God. We gain a blessing, we gain a benefit, from worship. But we should never ask, what should I do in worship with the goal being of making worship better, quote unquote, for us? Sometimes I hear people say, oh, I really would love if worship would do this or worship would do that. But God defines what pleases Him. And so if my goal is to worship God, I'm going to do what pleases Him. And then I'm going to find pleasure in doing that, in knowing that I am pleasing Him. As a servant of God, my desire should be to worship Him. He tells me what day that I'm to worship Him. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, the disciples came together upon the first day of the week. So God designed a day, the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's the day that I find revealed in the Scriptures. I'm taught what it is that I'm to do on that day. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talked about partaking of the Lord's Supper, and he mentioned the elements of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. So the disciples come together and partake of that memorial feast known as the Lord's Supper upon the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said that when they come together, they would give of their means. So we lay by in store so that the Lord's work can continue, so that we have a part in that work. We sing upon the first day of the week because disciples sang in the first century. We offer up prayers because we know disciples prayed when they were together. And we hear a discourse from God's Word as we, we note again in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20 and in verse 7, it mentions that when disciples had come together upon the first day of the week to break bread that Paul preached unto them. So we find in the New Testament what it is that I am to do in order to please God. And we also find what is not there. We don't find instruments of music being used. We don't find electronic or recorded music being used. We don't find choirs or duets or soloists. 
We find, as in places like Colossians chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, that we sing one to another because our purpose in singing is to edify one another. You know, as much as I might enjoy the sound of a guitar or an organ, it doesn't edify me. It doesn't teach me anything about God. It doesn't give me an understanding of the need to overcome my struggles and to do a better job, so to speak, in my relationship with my Heavenly Father. But hearing His Word and being comforted by the knowledge that other disciples believe in that and teaching one another that, that does edify me, that does strengthen me. So we find that God not only tells us what to do, but in His silence eliminates things that we don't need to include. But, but finally, in, in summarizing all of this, it is where I learn what God accepts as pleasing to Him that I must change my life to imitate. When Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm not to be conformed to this world. I'm to change the way I live to conform to the image of Christ. And when I do that, I have a guarantee from God that my life then becomes a living sacrifice that is pleasing to Him and demonstrates my willingness to serve Him to others. That I can be as Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that I can be and you can be a light that directs others unto God and to His glory. The New Testament reveals unto us everything we need to know to answer the question, how can I become a child of God and live a life that pleases Him? We need go nowhere else. Once again, this is Jim Walsh. Thank you for listening to On Eagle's Wings. I hope you have a wonderful day.